And if you will remain standing and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 13. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You would do well to give it your full attention. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Psalm 13 is a psalm composed by King David. We're not sure of the exact circumstances that David was experiencing when he composed this psalm. In fact, he may not have even been king yet. It could very well be that he was being pursued by King Saul. But there are also several other instances in David's life to which this psalm could be referring It is nevertheless perfectly placed in the Psalter because in the movement from Psalm 12 to Psalm 13, his feelings of isolation intensify. Perhaps you'll remember that in the previous Psalm, Psalm 12, David feels all alone. In that Psalm he states, The godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And so David felt, as a follower of God, that he was all alone, as if he was the last believer on earth. But from Psalm 12 to Psalm 13, there is a progression in that, the latter psalm, he begins to feel as if even God has abandoned him. Psychologically, abandonment... is not exactly what had taken place in his life. It is certainly not the case that the Lord had abandoned him. But he certainly felt abandoned by God, psychologically speaking. Now it's not difficult to see then why David begins this psalm with a lament. Like other psalms we have seen this Psalm begins with a lament and ends with praise. The structure of the psalm as a whole can be broken up really into three different parts. There is a cry of lament in verses 1 and 2, a prayer with requests in verses 3 and 4, and then a song of praise 
in verses 5 and 6. First, we will exposit each of those verses here in this psalm to understand as best we can David's experience and his responses to the experience that he faced in this psalm. And then we will look at how this psalm ultimately points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, we will see how David was a type and shadow of Christ. And then finally, we will see how this psalm applies to believers today. And so we begin with David's cry of lament in verses 1 and 2. We could describe his lament as bringing a complaint to the Lord. This is not a complaint of, of rebellion, but a complaint of the righteous, a complaint of belief. It requires David to turn to the only one who can hear, respond, and give relief to David's situation. Matthew Henry speaks to these types of complaints that we find in the Psalms, and he says... Speaking of David, his troubles extort complaints, and the afflicted have liberty to pour out their complaint before the Lord. It is some ease to a troubled spirit to give vent to its griefs, especially to give vent to them at the throne of grace, where we are sure to find one who is afflicted in the afflictions of his people and is troubled with the feeling of their infirmities. There we have boldness of access by faith. So David's complaint comes then as lamentation, in which he repeats the question, how long, four different times, here in the first two verses. The first, how long, actually comes in two questions. He starts simply by saying, how long, O Lord? He leaves it there. It's that simple. How long? How long is this trouble going to continue? How long? And this question is continued by asking, will you forget me forever? David feels that the persistence of his present struggle means that God must have forgotten him. Clearly, David has experienced this struggle, this suffering at the hands of his enemy for quite some time. And so he issues up a complaint. How long, O Lord, will this suffering go on forever? Will you forget me forever? But we see that David has turned to the Lord. He knows in whose hands this situation is held. The Lord has control over it. And since it has persisted for quite some time, he asks if the Lord will forget him forever. He's wondering why God hasn't yet come to his aid. Now, since God has delayed in bringing him aid... It has resulted in him wrestling internally with his thoughts, which brings about continual sorrow. And so he asks, how long, 
a second time. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And finally, he asks, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So notice that David's complaints of lamentation are complaints that are based upon God's promises. All four of these questions are based upon God's promises. God had sworn to remember his covenant promises and so to remember the people with whom he had covenanted. Yet David prays, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? God had promised to be present with his people. He promised in Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 to never leave them nor forsake them. Yet David David prays, how long will you hide your face from me? God had anointed David and chose him to be the king of Israel. Yet David asked, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? God had promised to protect his people and give them victory. Yet David asks, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so you see how David's complaints are rooted in resting in the promises of God. They are the complaints of a believer, one who has trusted in the promises of God. Immediately after his Complaints, he turns to God in prayer. Now, truly, even the complaints were part of his prayer. The whole psalm is a prayer. And so it might be better for us to think of this part of the psalm as David simply making requests in the prayer. These requests are are based upon his questions. In verses 1 and 2, he felt as if God had forgotten him and turned his face from him. So now he requests of God to consider him and to answer him. In other words, he is saying, God, you have delayed until now to address the situation, but take action now. David needs immediate attention because he feels that if the Lord continues to delay, that he will sleep the sleep of death, which is simply a metaphor for Going to the grave. It is a sleep of the body, not a sleep of the soul. And if he dies, then his enemy would have prevailed over him and his foes would rejoice. And so he requests the Lord not only to answer him or take actions, but specifically to light up his eyes. He asks this because to an ancient Israelite, the dimming of the eyes was an expression of of approaching death. When one's eyes had been shut, then they were dead. And so to ask the Lord to light up his eyes meant he was asking the Lord to preserve his life. And this was not just a plea for the sake of his own life, but it was also praying on the basis of the Lord and who he is, for the reputation of the Lord. You see, David was the Lord's anointed. He wants God to keep his promises, for if he didn't, then injustice would occur. His enemies would triumph over him, and the Lord would not, it would look as if the Lord was not only failing to keep his promises, but that the Lord himself had been defeated. 
In David's defeat, it would look as if the Lord had been defeated. The enemies of David are the enemies of the Lord. And if David was defeated and injustice occurred, then it would appear that the Lord had been defeated. And thus that the Lord was not actually the Lord over all. And so these are the requests of David's prayer. He prays not only for himself, but for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the Lord's reputation. And immediately following his requests, David responds with praise in the final two verses. He proves that his complaints did indeed come from a place of belief. He recalls the trust in the Lord's steadfast love. That word actually, it's one word in the Hebrew, two in English, steadfast love. That word is hard to translate entirely into English. William Tyndale in his translation of the Bible, translates it as loving kindness, which is a good translation. But it also has covenantal overtones to it. It means something like the love God shows to us through his covenant faithfulness. So that's kind of hard to translate from one word. And so you see why often it's translated loving kindness Or something of the like. His steadfast love. But it's his. The love from his covenant faithfulness. Displayed in his covenant faithfulness. And so David is saying something like. I have trusted in the love that you've shown me. By your covenant faithfulness. Throughout my years. I want you to notice at this point. How David is taken away. From his self pity. That was expressed at the beginning of the psalm, at the beginning of his prayer. And now he's taken to the Lord's promises and the Lord's faithfulness. And that's what occurs, beloved, when spirit-wrought faith is winged by prayer. It takes you from a self-word focus to a God-word focus. It allows you to rejoice in the salvation provided by the Lord. And that's what David says next. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Even more beloved, spirit-wrought faith allows you to sing for joy even in the midst of suffering and trial. David concludes saying, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully. With me. In other words, David knows that regardless of how God handles this situation, the Lord has dealt and will deal with him in a way that is fully for his good. And knowing that, he can sing the praises of the Lord. He fully trusts in the Lord, regardless of how his prayer is answered. Now, throughout our series in the Psalms, we've made a concerted effort to demonstrate that these Psalms ultimately point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, that David as the psalmist is a type and a shadow of Christ. And that's why these Psalms were the songbook of Jesus. He saw himself in these psalms. He recognized 
that the experiences were truly and ultimately about him, the Messiah. And it's without question that Jesus suffered throughout his anointed ministry, very similarly to the way David suffered. He even suffered from his human side, psychologically, sweating drops of blood as he prayed to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane on account of the enemies that were pursuing him to death. Time and time again throughout these Psalms, I've pointed out that verse from Hebrews chapter 5, which says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from out of death. That's what David is praying in this psalm. And we see that reflected in our Savior's life. He even prayed for the Lord to take the cup of the cross from him if it were possible. However, Jesus did not ultimately pray to be kept from death, but to be saved from out of death, as we saw in that Hebrews 5 passage. He prayed to be saved from the clutch of death, of which the Father did indeed raise him from the grave, for death could not hold him. And so he did not pray for the Lord to keep his eyes from dimming as David did, but to be saved from out of death and to pass through God's wrath, of which he would drink on behalf of his elect. He understood even better that David, uh, he understood better, we could say, than David did. What it was like to experience the father hiding his face from him. For David, this was merely a psychological sentiment. For the Lord was always with David. But because Jesus was numbered with the sinners and bore their sins on the cross, the Father's benevolent face was turned from Christ as the Father poured out His wrath upon the Son. I would imagine this is where the verse comes from in the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Which says, The Father turns His face away. It's actually not stated in any of the Gospels or in Scripture in such a way, but it is certainly said here by David as a type of Christ. How long will you hide your face from me? Christ truly knew what it was like for the blessedness of the Father's face to be turned away. And the reason for this was his bearing the guilt of your sins. So that the Lord might lift up his countenance upon you and bless you. His face was turned away from the sun for a moment. Pouring out his wrath that he might lift up his countenance upon you. Now that beloved brings us to the ways in which this psalm applies to us today. You see, those who are in Christ will never experience God's face turning from them. They will never be abandoned by God, abandoned by Christ. 
Because David was in Christ, and he was indeed in Christ, for he believed on the Messiah that was to come. And since he was in Christ, he never actually or never truly experienced the hiding of God's face from him. He certainly felt as if the Lord's face was hidden from him, a feeling he experienced at least for two reasons. Number one, because he was a type foreshadowing the experience of Christ on the cross. But number two, because his experience would serve as an illustration for the people of God throughout the ages. You see, what David experiences emotionally and psychologically is something that many believers experience. Though Christians are never truly abandoned by God, emotionally and psychologically, they often feel abandoned by Him. Many Christians go through times of sorrow and lamentation. I think sometimes Christians are reluctant to talk about their sorrows, their griefs, their depression, because the Christian life is supposed to be trouble-free. Unending happiness. Unfortunately, many theologies out there today teach that the Christian life is all happiness, all feelings of bliss, all prosperity. But this certainly did not describe the life of our Savior. Isaiah 53 describes Christ as our suffering servant. And of him it says that he was a man of sorrow and grief. If that is how scripture described Christ, a man of suffering, sorrows, and grief, then what must life for his followers be like when it calls for them to pick up their crosses and follow him? A friend of mine said that the first hymn he taught his oldest child was, Man of Sorrows, what a name. And he said that other Christians were surprised that he would teach her that hymn, which in turn surprised him. Why, why is song a hymn so sorrowful? Why, why would that be the hymn you teach your child? As if his daughter would never experience sorrow or grief. Beloved, the Psalms not only point us to Christ, but they teach us how to worship God in every situation and emotion that we might experience. Sorrow and lamentation are included in such expressions of worship. In fact, there are more psalms of lament than there are psalms of praise in the Psalter. Having said that, the psalms of lament usually end in praise. Because you can praise the Lord even in the midst of lamentation and suffering. To go to the Lord in lamentation and sorrow is also an act of worship. And it keeps us from despair. It keeps our focus upon the Lord and not just ourselves and the sorrow in our situations. This psalm teaches, and all throughout the Psalter, the psalms teach us, that sorrow and lamentation should cause us to seek refuge in the Lord 
through prayer. To flee to his throne with your requests and to seek his will in your troubles. And that is what David did. This is what our Lord did also in the days of his flesh. We are to learn this from them and to imitate them. Now, we also learn that we are to wait on the Lord. He is the one who will bring deliverance. David waited for quite some time. And that is evident by the repetition of his question, how long? Repeated four times. How long? How long? How long? How long, Lord? And David had different struggles throughout his life, and sometimes he was not delivered from them for years. In Psalm 31.10, he says, For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. In Psalm 6, he says that every night he floods his bed with tears. In Psalm 69.3, he says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. There's that expression, the dimming of the eyes. He's approaching death, waiting for the Lord's deliverance. But that's what he does. He continually cries out to God and he waits on the Lord. Now, what does that mean to wait on the Lord? Well, it means that you don't seek to take the situation into your own hands. You don't seek by your own might and by your own power to be delivered from whatever suffering has come upon you. Now, does that mean that you let go and let God? You've probably heard that expression You just need to let go and let God. He or she just needs to let go and let God. I think that expression exists because some people fail to account for God's sovereignty. And they live as if they are sovereign over their own lives. In other words, they're depending on themselves to get out of their suffering or their trial. But that expression also doesn't take account of man's responsibility, which Scripture equally teaches to God's sovereignty. It's trying, I think that expression is trying to account for God's sovereignty, but it doesn't account for man's responsibility. And so waiting on the Lord does not mean let go and let God. It means discerning God's will in the matter and acting accordingly, whatever that might be. How do you know? God's will? Well, God has revealed his will to you in his word, in his law. And so you must know his word, know his commands, know his revealed will. And you must walk in accordance with those as you undergo suffering and trial. I could put it this way. We don't seek in our flesh to get out of our sufferings, but we walk in the spirit As we experience them. And in God's good timing. He will provide you with a way of escape. If we walk according to the flesh. Then we will be tempted to not follow God's commands. We will be tempted to break God's law. And trying to escape our sufferings. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. 
God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, beloved, and we saw this so much in the series in Hebrews, how suffering, with suffering comes temptation. And the question that concerns us will be, will we seek in our own struggle, in our own might, to get our way out of the suffering and so disobey God? Or will we follow God's law, follow God's word, and be faithful even in the midst of suffering? We must remember that our prayers in times of suffering should not simply be about getting out of those sufferings. That would make the focus of our prayers be selfishly upon us alone. Remember, David doesn't pray simply because he dislikes the suffering, but because he wants God's reputation to be defended. God is righteous and he judges with righteousness. He does not turn a blind eye to the evil of the wicked, nor to the oppression of his people. And so David is praying for the evil persecutors to be punished. And for him to be vindicated. And this is really very similar to the vision that John sees in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation. In verses 9 and 10, John writes, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see, this is a vision of the saints who have gone on to be with the Lord, crying out for the reputation of God and for his people to be vindicated. But the Lord tells them what? To wait, to rest a little longer. In God's good timing, he will bring all suffering to an end. And he will bring vindication for himself and for his people. But for now, he intends to use that suffering to conform his church to the image of her Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is what it means to wait on the Lord. When you face sorrow and grief and suffering and trial. And in faith, you fly to the throne of mercy and petition and prayer. You're awaiting on the Lord. You're seeking the Lord's guidance. You see, the Father hears your prayers through the mediation of the Son. And even when you know not what to pray or how to ask as you ought, the Spirit helps you in your weakness and helps you to praise God in your suffering as well as in your rescue. So that you come to know that God has dealt most bountifully with you in Christ. I will leave you with the precious promises of Romans eight twenty-eight and following. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we are thankful that you hold us in your hands. And that in fact you hold all things in your hands. For you have ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And nothing happens outside of your will. And though that can be perplexing to us, mysterious to us, Lord, help us to trust like little children in you as our Father. Lord, may we indeed be conformed to the image of Christ who suffered even unto death. And may we be willing, O Lord, to look at our suffering as a means to be sanctified and to be conformed to Christ's image. And we pray these things in his most holy name. Amen.